Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Monday, September 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. A uh, couple exciting things. Number one, we are in the same room, which rarely happens. I think maybe one-eighteenth of our episodes uh, are in person where we're in the same room, so that's always fun. Always good to see you. They're my favorite. And when we need to break out and, you know, use the big brains, 100% of our brain for an episode, I feel like we do our best work when we're together in the room. Absolutely. Yeah. Between us, we have a brain. Uh, So one of the big requests we've been getting a lot of lately is for another deep dive. Jason and Scott Show Deep Dive. So today's show is going to be a deep dive, and about a year ago, um, so apologies to everybody, we uh, we put out a call for listener request on deep dives, and one of the number one requested topics was personalization. Uh, that is one of Jason's specialties. He's flying around the country constantly giving this talk for millions of dollars an hour, so you guys are getting a great treat. Uh, the only cost for this one is five stars, so if you like what you hear, give us five stars. Other people are paying high nine figures for this talk. So uh, I'm going to be a fly on the wall on this one. I'm going to inject hopefully some kind of intelligent comments as we go along, but I'm going to kick it over to Jason, who's going to dive deep into the world of personalization. Did you just tell everyone that uh, I go around the world with a canned presentation that's exactly the same for every audience that's about personalization? I'm sure you personalize it. That's, let's talk about that. Do you personalize your personalization? I for sure personalize the cover slide, if nothing else. Okay. Well, that counts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we, we may talk about that. Uh, but so I've tried to uh, break the show up into four main components today. We're going to do a little bit of um, talking about the definition of personalization and level setting uh, everyone, get kind of all of us on the same page. Then I'm going to talk about uh, what I see as sort of best practices today and uh, what what clever folks are doing and what some of the best examples are out there of personalization. Um, and then we're going to, as we always do on the show, kind of pivot to the near future and talk about what's coming and uh, what's what's uh, down the road a little bit in terms of personalization and maybe wrap things up with a couple of uh, conclusions or recommendations that folks can take to their day job if they're thinking about personalization. Sounds good. Uh, so with that, let's jump right in to the definition. Um, and the the first thing I always like to remind people about when we're talking about personalization is that in the beginning of commerce, uh, by default, almost all shopping experience were personalized. Like shopping was a very one-to-one experience. You were usually working directly with a merchant. Um, and that merchant was personalizing the shopping experience to every one of their customers. So if uh, if you're old enough to have watched Little House on the Prairie and you think of Mr. Ingalls' general store. Mr. Ingalls knew all the customers that came into his store. Most of the goods were in the back in a stock room. So you talked to Mr. Ingalls, told him what you wanted to buy. He'd go back, 
get your goods. And if you bought less sugar than you did last month or you bought more flour or something like that, he very likely would have a conversation with you about why you were changing your order. And he would know about you and he would personalize that shopping experience to your needs. And so what has sort of happened is the population of the earth dramatically expanded um, from that general store format. And we were no longer able to deliver that personalized one-to-one experience to every shopper. And so we kind of went to the, the era of mass marketing and mass retail and, you know, being able to fit a bunch of customers in the store and have it be very self-service. And so what's interesting to me is all of this modern digital shopper marketing, what it's really doing is letting us get back to the kind of one-to-one experience that Mr. Uh, Ingalls used to deliver, but now do it, I'm sorry, Mr. Olson used to deliver, but now do it at uh, scale. And so uh, when we're talking about personalization, to me, it's really getting back to the best practices of the origins of commerce. Um, that being said, one thing that always annoys me about this topic is that personalization isn't a single thing. It's a tactic and it's a whole range of tactics. Um, and so, uh, you know, frankly, I see a ton of studies and there's always, uh, sort of talking heads talking about like, uh, oh gosh, uh, 68% of customers want a more personalized experience. If you deploy personalization, you'll have 13% greater sales or higher AOVs or all these different things. And I always like to remind people that's somewhat absurd because there's no definition for what that personalization is. It's, it's a tactic. It's kind of like saying, um, uh, stores with green paint will sell more stuff. Well, where is the green paint and what color is the green paint? And in some cases it might have a prominent pronounced effect. In some cases it might have a negative effect. So I just, uh, when I talk to clients that are starting a personalization initiative, I like to always start by reminding them the outcome we're trying to achieve is not personalization. Like the goal isn't just to have something be more personalized than it was before. We're personalizing things to make them more relevant to the customer and make the customer more successful. Um, and so I always like to begin with that end in mind that we're, we're the outcome we're really seeking is relevancy, not personalization. So then, so all of our listeners out there probably have 50 things they could be working on. If you can't say spend X, get Y, then how do you help them understand where to put personalization on their priority list? Yeah, so I actually wouldn't. I wouldn't have personalization as a initiative on my roadmap and say I'm prioritizing at number 12. I would have initiatives on my roadmap like improve my conversion rate, increase my customer lifetime value, increase my engagement with my content. I would have goals like that. And in the process of achieving some of those goals, one of the tactics that's going to be very helpful is to personalize the experience to achieve those goals. So uh, it's always a red flag to me when I see people that have quote unquote personalization on their, on the roadmap. Um, and the, uh, you know, I'm somewhat uh, negative and sarcastic. Um, one of the retailers that spend an awful lot of time talking about their personalization success um, and they get used as an example all the time, is a brand that was bought by QVC called Zulily, a daily deal. Mm-hmm. Show. And they, you know, they've made the roadshows and done all these case studies about their personalization. And they're really fond of pointing out that they generate millions of custom landing pages every day for their customers. And 
99% of that custom landing page means that it says welcome Scott in the right hand corner when you go to that page. And so technically that is personalized. They know who you are and the page changed. But if the offers aren't more relevant, if it didn't somehow make you more successful, it's, it's not a meaningful personalization. Yeah. Okay, one more for dummies question that hopefully some other listeners have. Yeah. Uh, so I, when I talk to a lot of retailers, they always some retailers you go visit, they're all, they're obsessed with personas. So you'll go to visit some, and they'll act, actually have pictures on the wall that say, you know, this is Debbie. She's a soccer mom. She's forty. You know, she's thirty five. She's got two kids, and she lives in suburban. And then they'll a lot of times they'll customize the user experience for those people. Um, uh, I think Dick Sporting Goods does a lot of this as does uh, uh, Best Buy. Um, so, and I think Best Buy, one of the guys wrote a book, the angel customer demon customer. And a lot of the persona stuff comes out of that. If you, and I think Chewy has like cat lovers, dog lovers, and you know, both animal lovers. So, so if, if you go and you kind of have the experience, so you know in your database that Jason's a cat person and he is a dad of a toddler and that's a persona, um, is that personalization? And then you have kind of a different experience for that person. Yeah. So to me, that absolutely is personalization. It's on the spectrum of personalization, right? So if you're someone that has historically had like a one size fits all marketing program, you have 5 million names in your email list and, and once a week, you blast all five million of those people the exact same email. Um, and you instead go, hey, you know what? Half of that email list are dog lovers and half are cat lovers. So I'm going to segment my email list into two chunks. And I'm going to email a cat email the half and a dog email the half. That absolutely is personalization. It's not as far on the spectrum as saying... This email is going to Scott, and I know that he only buys grain-free cat food, and so I'm going to send him a very specific email that only he got based on his unique attributes. Um, so personas are a, a very useful way to do this sort of intermediate step, and often, frankly, that, that still today is the high-value step. So hmm. often the ROI you get from going from a – a one-size-fits-all campaign to a segmented campaign is much more significant than the incremental ROI you you get by going to the much more expensive, dynamically generated one-to-one campaign, if you will. Yeah. Cool. So hopefully you'll – I'm sure you'll hit on the spectrum. But the, the reason I bring it up is a lot of these startup – I'm a startup guy and a lot of these startup brands come to me and they say, look, I want to do – you know, this kind of personalization stuff and they're, you know, to them, it's a five to $10 million project. Cause there's this database. I know you guys have some name for this database that like pulls all this stuff together. <laughs> there's the CRM feeds into it. And then like all this uh, data, the customer data platform, yeah, the CDP, the CDP. Yeah. And then, you know, they go look at the vendors for that and that's like, you know, a couple million bucks and then like the project on it and all that. So it just feels unobtainable. Yeah. Um, and you know, it just feels like this huge thing to do personalization. Whereas my recommendation is just start with pretty simple segmentation. Um, and then even then, you know, you can get a little bit of refinement in there and even, you know, you talked about it in the email marketing, even on your website, you know, you can kind of have in your CRM, are they a cat or dog person? And then show them a little bit different content and, yeah. you know, feels like you should get a, you know, and that's more of a hundred thousand dollar project versus a, oh my gosh, a $10 million project. Yeah. And we'll get into that a little bit, but often it's even are they a return customer versus a first time customer? Like maybe I don't like, are they already in my email marketing list? Maybe I don't need to use that pop-up 
to interrupt what they're doing, yeah. asking for their email address when I already have it. Yeah, or push the product I know they just bought five minutes ago. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like so, very often it's those simple steps that are that are higher ROI. Um, we're not going to get deep in, into personas, but I will. Like uh, since you brought it up, I'll make one comment on person personas. The mistake a lot of people make on personas is uh, they start internally and work out. So they go, who do we imagine our customer is? Who do we want our customer? And so I'll be honest, every retailer I work with has a persona. And very rarely does the persona on the wall map the demographics of their customer base. Mm -hmm. So like almost always the persona is this like young, hip, stylish woman. A fur, yeah, affluent urbanite. Exactly. Yeah. And then like stylish. 80% of the revenue is coming from women that are 15 years older and are doing more utilitarian shopping. Hmm. Um, and so it, it, these aspirational personas, there's, there's places where, where they can be beneficial, but often people confuse those with their actual personas. Um, and the, the same thing with demographics. Like people often start by saying like, oh, we should do things different for millennials than we do for boomers. Mm-hmm. And they, they take some random trait and then ascribe different experiences to that different trait of the customer. And that's actually opposite of how you really want to do it. What you really want to do is say, like, who are our most valuable customers and what traits do they have in common? And it, so it may be age, it may be geography, it may be use case, but like, Personalizing based on some trait as opposed to identifying the traits based on data is a, a common mistake we, we see in marketing. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so the I, I wanted to sort of talk about what some of the common kinds of personalization that, that we see today because there are so many different touch points that can pers- be personalized and they can be personalized on different spectrums. Um, and instead of just giving you my opinion, which obviously – my opinion is very near and dear to my own heart. Um, I, I wanted to uh, use some data to sort of frame this. And so uh, a study you would be familiar with is um, the NRF partners with Forrester every year, and they do this state of online retailing study. And so what they do is they go out to hundreds of, of uh, retailers and e-commerce shops, and they have them fill out a survey answering a bunch of questions about their business. And some of those questions pertain directly to personalization. So one for purposes of our deep dive, one of the most interesting questions is um, what uh, personalization touch point do you or tactic do you prioritize the highest? And, you know, what are the ne- next 10 in ranked order? So looking across the whole Soros study, there are eight touch points um, that retailers said that they were focused on and that they were prioritizing. So the number one personalized touch point um, in the Soros study is personalized recommendations in email. So what that essentially means is you probably got a generic email that was the same for everyone, but at some point in that email were product tiles that were recommending a particular product that you might be interested in buying. And those product tiles were personalized unique for you based on some attributes that that retailer had learned about you. So they're using tools like Monetate or Sertona or Rich Relevance or Dynamic Yield um, against a database to decide what products to recommend to Scott, and those could be different than the products that came in the recommendation to me. And, And of all things that can be personalized, that's the highest priority. 
The second highest priority is what we already talked about. It's segmenting that email list based on some attributes we know about the customer. So instead of one size fits all, let's partition that email and make static content, but static content that's more catered to that particular segment. Um, the the third uh, personalization tactic is marketing messages on other sites. So that's things like uh, remarketing and the, the ads that follow you around the internet and use uh, that, you know, the fact that you browse for a product on our website uh, to, to recommend products on other people's sites. Um, the fourth is that on sites recommendation. So that's the same as the email recommendation, but instead of showing it to you in an email, we're showing it to you on a category page or a product detail page. And so that famously for Amazon, that's the People that bought this also bought this or browse for this also browse for that or those, those kinds of recommendations. Um, the number five on the list is personalized messages on devices in stores. So that's usually geofencing the mobile phone and popping up an offer or a promotion on the phone when you know you walked into the store. Uh, number six is personalized discounts. So custom offers um, based on something unique we know about you. Uh, number seven is the Zuwili example that I, I brought up earlier. It's uh, putting the you know uh, addressing the customer by name instead of treating them as a as an unknown entity. Um, and number eight is giving better uh, information about the customer shopping history to sales associates in the store so that they can deliver a more personalized experience to the retailer. Right. So of all the things in the world that could be personalized. Uh, the sort of state of our industry is those are the eight uh, that retailers are tending to focus the most on and putting the most energy in right now. Um, and I would argue that those are all pretty pedestrian. Yeah. So marketing messages on other sites could be, well, part of the problem, one of the challenges is, so let's say a Google ad, you know, Google doesn't give you enough information to really kind of know, hey, this is Jason and his log, you know, I, I, I can send him a very targeted kind of ad campaign. Yeah. yeah, although I would say the digital ads are becoming a, an easy touch point for that personalization. So there are now a lot of Google ad formats that can be dynamically generated. And okay. so uh, instead of running one ad for everyone, you may have a, a, a breadth of creative and Google automatically assembles the creative for a given customer. And even more so, uh, a super common advertising format on Facebook are lookalikes, yeah. which is sort of another form of personalization, like only showing that ad for a, a targeted audience that you think it's highly relevant for. Yeah. How, how come with all this personalization technology out there, uh, the number one retargeting thing when I buy something off Amazon is the thing I just bought? Yeah. Like what's, why, why are people doing that? Because executions are hard. <laughs> um, and yeah, we're going to talk about that later in the pitfalls, but like, um, you know, you often you, you run into retailers that have like, hey, we have a specific initiative on our roadmap called personalization. And per your point, we think we need want we want to build this really expensive customer data platform and replumb all our things to um, to drive personalization. And very often I'm like, cool, that's a great aspirational goal. Could we start by just using the exclusion list on a remarketing campaign to not market something to someone that they already bought? Yeah. Right. And that to me is a way higher value form of personalization because not only are you likely paying for an impression that's not adding any value, 
it's actually adding negative value. Like when you see a retailer advertising something that you just bought, your immediate perception is this this retailer doesn't care about me. They don't know me. They're not trying to um, give me a good experience or know what I want. They're just using some real brute force marketing techniques to try to sell more junk. Yeah. And sometimes it's a head fake and you're like, wait a minute. Pretty sure I ordered that. Let me go make sure. Certainly they wouldn't be advertising to me if I already ordered that. Then I'm like, well, let me go check and make sure the order went through. So it, it creates this negative perception that they have no idea what's going on. And you know, my order is not going to go through and et cetera. For sure. Um, and, but I guess the one thing I will say is good news. Like, well, to me, the sort of list is a little disappointing, right? Like the, there are, there are much more, there are much richer versions of personalization than the ones on this list. But I will say the majority of things on this list have the potential to very meaningfully drive incremental results. So it's like, you know, a couple of these are around segmenting audiences, which we just talked about is uh, potentially a, a, a relatively easy, high value form of personalization. And these product tiles the, the, with, uh, that do things like recommendations, um, they're not thought of as super sexy in our industry. Uh, but I've seen a lot of uh, studies that suggest something like 35% of all of Amazon's revenue comes from those recommendation tiles. So customers find them super valuable. I would argue on a site like Amazon where the catalog is huge and unmanageable, they're even more valuable. Um, so if, you, if you're a retailer with a more curated catalog, you know, maybe like recommendations don't add 35%, but, but still um, they're a super meaningful tactic. And I, I always chuckle when I walk around the trade show floor and people are like, we've invented this new thing called artificial intelligence and you can use it to recommend products. And I'm like, uh, yeah, most of the good e-commerce sites have been doing that since 1996. Yeah. Isn't uh, one of the vendors a bunch of Amazon guys that left to kind of – they essentially said, hey, this is so powerful at Amazon that we will create our own. Isn't that rich relevance? Or are they, is so – uh, I, I would almost say that you just described all the personalization okay. vendors. Right. It's, it's almost like an obligatory part of your sales pitch is that you, you say that you are part of the Amazon team that helped invented their version. Um, there are, because this has been such a high-value tactic, there are companies that have been around for a long time and do this. So that like I think of as uh, sort of um, Rich Relevance, My Buys, and Sertona as kind of the, yeah. um, the first-generation recommendation engines. And I mean, we're, we're not getting into vendor selection on this show, but uh, there's some benefit to working with a vendor that's been doing this for 10 or 15 years because they actually have dramatically refined their abilities and they've seen a lot of data from customers. And so, you know, you get things like we've already had 10 wine customers and so we've tuned our algorithms to do a great job of recommending wine. So if you're a wine vendor, they've already trained their recommendation systems based on a lot of other wine customers. On the flip side, this is also an odd category where there's a lot of new shiny vendors that have just come to the market with next generation solutions and, you know, very often touting more modern machine learning um, based approaches. Mm -hmm. And in some some cases, they have invented a new mousetrap. And so it may have some some architectural or competitive advantages. So it's an area where. The good news is you have a lot of choice. The bad news is you, you, you really have to do some investigation to figure out what the, the best solution for you is. Cool. If you don't like the Soro list, what's the JSON list? Um, we're going to get to the JSON list in like best practices and what's, um, what's next. So, uh, so great question. Put a pause on that for just one second. 
Um, one more thing I wanted to talk about in the sort of current state is another question on the sort of list is how do you judge the success of your personalization? And so the top three metrics that retailers said they were using today to judge the success of their personalization efforts were conversion rate, click-through rate, and average order value. Um, and while those are generally important metrics for all e-commerce, I would actually are, I'm somewhat disappointed that those are the primary metrics people are using to judge personalization. Um, because, for example, uh, there could be a lot of great personalization that solved the customer's problem that didn't cause the customer necessarily to buy more stuff. So I would argue AOV is not directly related to personalization. Um, and very often, personalization is based on all the attributes we've already learned from you. Well, each time you come, we learn more about you, and therefore the personalization can be better. So the personalization you get on your eighth touch with me should be much better than the personalization you got on your first touch with me. And if I'm only evaluating these personalization based on the individual experience, the individual visit, and I'm thinking about conversion rate, mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about or noticing that some of those customers were uh, resulting from eight touches and, and a much richer data set than some of these customers that were anonymous and on their first touch. And so, uh, it's really important, you know, if you want to get personalization right and you're going to be investing meaningfully in changing your experiences, what you want to be optimizing the personalization for is really customer lifetime value, not um, the outcome of a single session or a single single customer interaction. And so to me, that feels like a mistake that can often cause you to invest in the wrong tactics. Um, Do you recommend people run kind of a some, you know, kind of an A-B test, so no personalization and then personalization and, and kind of use that to benchmark the lifetime value? If you can, but I'm actually not so interested in personalization versus no personalization. I'm interested in uh, current state versus potential new state. Okay. So, yeah. So yeah. I don't particularly care if your current state is personalized or not. Um, if your current state's personalized, I'm testing that new experience versus your current one, not against nothing. Got it. Um, if you will. And then the last thing that I'd like to point out that's kind of a sad fact of our current um, state of affairs in personalization is most personalization today is delivered through some kind of point solution from a vendor. So uh, there's vendors that specialize in sending email, right? So they collect a bunch of information about the customers and tar uh, segment the email. There are vendors that specialize in recommendation tiles on your website. We talked about a bunch of those. Um, there are vendors that uh, personalize your, your digital advertising campaigns. And at the moment, all of these point solutions want to be easy to buy and easy to install. So they tend to be SaaS-based solutions that are very lightweight to install in your stack and have their own private databases where they collect information. So they want to tag on your site to learn about the customer, and then they use what they learn to personalize their touch point. And of course... The huge downside of that is the personalized emails aren't benefiting from the learnings of the recommendations tool on your website at all or the recommendation tools in your customer set, uh, uh, service engine or uh, the dynamic creative that you're learning how to make for your ads isn't having a payoff on your own website and your own experiences. And so, like, clearly the current state of point solutions is somewhat problematic. Like, obviously, it would be much better if you aggregated everything you knew about the customer in a single 
data repository and leverage that single view of the customer to more personalize your experience across all of these touch points. And that's kind of that that idealistic in, in state that you talked about earlier that, hey, maybe, you know, there is an argument for having a CDP and having all these tools um, leverage that CDP. But to be honest, like before I invested millions of dollars in that CDP, I would do things like maybe I don't need the world's best vendor for each one of these touch points. Maybe one vendor that could do multiple touch points and share their own database is good enough in a way to kind of not create more silos. Yeah, it seems like a, a good CRM system is kind of the key to this. And then also, if you want to get smarter, you know, use the, the example of wine earlier, um, really good product data seems like, you know, those are going to be table stakes for for being able to do any of this kind of personalization you're talking about. Um, but then it also seems like we always see these kind of like, you know, all the big companies trying to go own these stacks of things now. That's the big trend in the vendor side. So is that happening? Or like, so we've got the cloud guys. So you've got the Salesforce cloud, the Adobe cloud, the SAP cloud, and is there some other cloud? I guess Microsoft's back in the game now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so you got all the cloud guys, uh, and then you probably have some of the, the platform guys. And there's, you know, most of the platform guys have been acquired by the cloud guys, but I'm sure there's still platform guys. Um, and then you have all of these kind of like loosely, you know, uh, hanging out there vendors like the conversion guys. Um, what are, are they all trying to piece it together with their offering and, and get you to? Are they trying to solve that problem, or are they just kind of splatting together point solutions? So partially, um, it's as these solutions become more table stakes, it's more common that a version of these experience, personalized version of these experiences, is built in to the core platforms or clouds. Yep. Um, so there almost certainly is going to be a recommendation engine in your base installation of Shopify or Salesforce Commerce Cloud um, or or any any of those platforms. And there, there are customers that will use that base version. Uh, it's still super common that people like to go shop for their own point solutions and layer that in. Um, but increasingly, the the platforms are giving you some reason and benefit not to, not to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and so, you know, the, uh, in the case of uh, Salesforce commerce cloud, uh, they have this artificial intelligent engine that they developed at Salesforce called Einstein. And the, the first appearance of Einstein in the Salesforce commerce cloud is this native product recommendations based on their advanced machine learning. And so mm -hmm. increasingly they would say, Hey, maybe don't buy the point solution. Use our advanced Einstein. The point solutions would still quickly point out, yeah, but Einstein's seeing boat parts for the first time, and we know every attribute about boat parts because we've worked with ten vendors that sell boat parts. So there, there's still arguments both ways. Um, uh, obviously, your data is a little cleaner and more universal if you can get by with the the solutions that come from your platform vendor. Got it. Um, so pivoting to, uh, sort of Jason's recommendations, and this will come as no shock based on, uh, some of the conversations we've already had. Um, I don't like to start by saying like, Hey, let's create the world's most expensive database and use the most advanced math in the world to, you know, dramatically change the shopping experience. I like to start with the low hanging fruit. Um, and so the first question I ask when we're talking about, um, any kind of personalization initiative is 
where are all the places in our customer journey when we're asking the customer for some piece of information that we already have? Mm-hmm. And if you take an inventory of this in your customer journey, you are going to be shocked how many times you ask someone for an email address you already have, how many times you ask someone um, for their preferred shipping address, like all of this information we collect over and over again. And it's super frustrating when a customer trusts us with that information and then we don't pay it off. And I'm talking about the simplest things in the world that no one thinks of. Uh, No customer that's created an account with you can remember their password. So here's what happens when they go to your site. They, it says type your email address and they type their email address. And then it says, Type your password, and the customer goes, oh, no, I don't know my password. So helpfully, right below that is a link that says, what if you forgot your password? And when you click that link, what always happens? You go to a new page with a form that says, type your email address, which you just did three seconds ago. Yep. Right? And that's a super simple thing to fix programmatically and grab that email address from the previous field. But that's the kind of, like, not sexy personalization um, that dramatically helps customers. And so, you know, I like to always start with this baseline. Don't collect any information about the customer unless you're prepared to use that to give them a better customer experience. And first and foremost, that means never have to ask the customer for the same piece of information twice. Mm. Um, So once you've knocked out those things, um, the next one I like to highlight is the one you just hit, don't promote stuff that I already bought, right? Yep. So the most overt version of that is the retargeting ads for the thing that I just bought from you. And I'll be honest, there's two reasons that happens. There's a lazy reason, um, which is all of those retargeting tools have a tool called an exclusion list. And so when you buy something, I should put you on the exclusion list for that product, and then that ad should never show up again. And there's a lot of reasons why... Someone may have skipped the plumbing step in doing that. Um, and that, to me, is super lazy. Um, sometimes you browsed that product anonymously, and then you bought it via some other mechanism. And so I don't actually know when you're on this third-party site that you're the same person that bought that product. So um, there can be use cases that are harder to solve for than others, but minimizing the times when you promote that stuff they already sold is huge. But I want to remind people of way bigger use cases than that retargeting. The retargeting is a particularly egregious version, but how many emails do you think you get from Apple? Uh, a lot. Yeah. yeah. And what are you wearing on your wrist right now? A watch. Yes. And uh, do you have the fancy new um, iPhone 11 Pro Max in your pocket? I do, yes. Yeah. So... What are the featured items on every single email you've gotten from Apple in the last two weeks since you got that? Yeah, it's the products I already have. Yeah, yeah. and it's as simple as um, they do a one-size-fits-all mailing, and so they mailed you the exact same thing, and they didn't And then say, you get it from the carrier who should also know what phone I have. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, totally – so again, low-hanging fruit that totally eroded your confidence and relationship in that, that brand – uh, on a subconscious level, right? And so, like, like fix those things first. And then after you've stopped asking people for information you already know and stopped trying to sell them products that they already bought, then you can get into the sexy stuff of surprising and delighting customers by giving them these personalized experiences that they didn't expect that somehow make their shopping better, right? And those are things like 
uh, Moose Jaw Mountaineering when you're buying ski boots. And Moose Jaw knows what size ski boots you bought last season and help uh, remind you of what size you bought before you have to select a size, right? Like, what size boots do you want? Last year you bought nine and a half. Like, those, those kinds of surprise and delight moments. Or, hey, a year ago you bought your dad a gift from Sephora. Have you picked a gift this year? Like, those kinds of, mm-hmm. of like, more advanced personalization and surprise and delight are awesome. But to me, they're kind of later in the spectrum after we get those table stakes squared away. Um, we talked a little bit about the 360-degree view of the customer, but that really is a best practice. And increasingly... Something that you need to think about, even if you don't want to invest in the fancy CDP and all those tools today, you still are collecting information about new customers every day. And one thing I would highly recommend every customer invest in is some basic data governance um, around personalization and data, data privacy. And by that, what I mean is make sure you're disclosing to the customer what you're collecting and how you're going to use it. Because... Four years from now, you're going to have way more advanced personalization tools than are available to you right now, and you're going to want to use all this data that you've collected over the last five years in your business. And if you think the European and California privacy laws are kind of restricted right now, there's a good bet they're going to be more restrictive down the road. And it'll be a shame if you're not allowed to use any of your data because... Uh, you didn't follow best data governance practices and how you collected it. But just by having a, the right privacy policy and the right disclosures when you collect that data today, it frees you much more to leverage that data in the future when there will be better ways to leverage it. it. Is there a day where the privacy stuff will be ramped up so high we won't be able to do the level of personalization you're talking about? For sure there will be some levels of personalization we want to do. I, uh, there already are. Um, one, like a lot of customers that come to a site are unauthenticated, meaning it's the first time they came to the site or they've been to the site before and maybe even created an account, but I didn't give them a compelling reason to log in when they came back. And so they look like an anonymous user to me. And there are actually a lot of evil technology t- tactics we can use to recognize that unauthenticated user. Um, We can look at all of the different settings that they've made in their browser and create almost a unique fingerprint from their browser to identify them pretty close to uniquely. Um, We can share data with other vendors secretly uh, to identify them pretty uh, uniquely. And uh, we used to be able to put cookies on other people's sites, what are called cross-browser cookies. And all of those kinds of tactics are slowly but surely getting turned off. And so absolutely it is harder to personalize an experience for an unauthenticated user today than it used to be because of some of these, like, like frankly, very good consumer protections that are put in place. And so, yeah. like, you know, we just have to um, live within the, the constraints that are offered, but there are a ton of things we can still do within, within those constraints. Yeah. As a consumer, I find myself preferring apps for, you know, my most commonly shopped things, be it food delivery or any of that stuff, because the apps never, they don't constantly bug me for my username and password. Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting that they're held to kind of a different standard than the website guys that the, the app on your phone can remind, even when I just did my whole, you know, as you upgrade OSs and then move phones, they do a pretty good job of the app uh, login credentials following you and, and not kind of having to remember everything. Yeah, so your authentication on your app is much more persistent than your authentication on the web. 
Mm-hmm. So the the browsers generally by default the cookies expire in some period of time. But even a bigger problem is at some point many users have an occasion to clear their cookies, and it might have had nothing to do with you. It might have been they didn't trust some other site they used or had some other problem. But on the browser, the settings are universal. So when you say clear all my cookies, the easiest thing to do is clear the cookies for every site you've ever been to. Whereas on the app, uh, you're much more granularly working with a single site. So, you know, people tend to, this didn't used to be the case in apps, by the way. Usually, It used to be when they upgraded the operating system, it wiped out all those yeah. authentications. Now that they're way better at even having those authentications persist through operating system upgrades. The downside is, uh, to me, in this ecosystem of commerce, for the most part, apps are way overrated. Like, your best users use your app, and, and that's super valuable to them. But the amount, the percentage of your total shopper base that are willing to download and regularly use your app is very small. And so it's almost always a mistake to feel like, because I have a good app experience, I have a good experience. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. um, so, but with that caveat, I would totally agree. Um, and that leads me to my next best practice. One of the most important things you can do for personalization is give the user a really good reason to identify themselves every time they interact with you so that you are dealing with an authenticated user, right? Um, it allows you to give them a much better experience that's much lower friction that generates more loyalty. And so one of the most compelling reasons we give to customers to authenticate themselves every time they come back to my site is by offering them some kind of loyalty program. Um, so it's not a coincidence that when we look at some of the retailers that are best at personalization, they tend to be the retailers that have the most successful, highest engaged customer loyalty and, affini- and affinity programs. So historically, that's kind of a points for purchase program. Increasingly, they're more nuanced than that. Um, and so there can be a lot of different benefits for being a member of, of the the loyalty program, and I often talk about it being a frequency program instead of a loyalty program, because mm-hmm. it's really about getting the customer to come and interact with you a lot as opposed to exclusively. Um, but 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 implementing a loyalty program that resonates with your customers, that causes them to authenticate themselves every time they come to your site, is a super valuable tactic that enables all of uh, these other personalizations to be more successful. Um, so with that being said... The most common question I get is, who's great at personalization? Who should I benchmark myself against? And it's always really hard to answer because, A, uh, who's better at what kind of personalization? As we talked about early, there's no universal definition. So is Zulily great at personalization because they create all these dynamic homepages with your name on it? Probably not. Um, But what does good personalization look like? Um, And I I struggle to give an answer, but I'm happy to report that... uh, a vendor out there, sail through has started doing, and I think this is the third year, a pretty cool personalization index. And so what they've done is they have said, hey, we think there's about 100 different ways that e-commerce sites typically personalize their site. And we're going to look at the top 500 uh, e-commerce sites and evaluate all of them against these 100 criteria and sort of essentially score them. So they... They essentially created a framework, and then they apply this framework to, to these 500 sites, which is a significant amount of work. And ten, so you can download, and we'll put a link in the show notes, their personalization index. Uh, but the top 10 retailers on their personalization index are generally retailers we think of as 
being pretty good at at least one flavor of personalization. So number one is Sephora. Um, it's, uh, by the way, 95% of all Sephora's uh, revenue comes from their frequency program, and they're great at getting customers to engage with them. Um, they don't send out a lot of mass emails. Like almost all the emails are targeted and triggered based on activities that you've had with Sephora. So I would totally argue, I would totally agree that Sephora is a best practitioner of personalization today. They know you the best and they, they leverage what they know to improve your experience. Uh, number two on that list is Nordstrom. Um, they have some very strong personalization points. Uh, number three on that list is Rent the Runway. Um, uh, this is getting into an area that's more uh, uh, even future-looking. Uh, Rent the Runway is act- not only personalizing the experience, they're personalizing the assortment and the merchandising uh, based on what they know about you. So, you know, they're using your personal preferences to decide what sizes and styles of stuff they should even offer, um, which is interesting. Uh, Home Depot is on is number four on the list. Best Buy is number five. Uh, DSW is number six. Ulta is number seven. Urban Outfitters is number eight. Uh, Adidas is number nine. And Wayfair is number ten. Um now, full disclosure, uh, the sale through picked their own 100 attributes, and you and I could quibble with whether they picked the right 100 attributes and how many points you should get for everything. So I wouldn't necessarily use this as a literal, like these are absolutely the 10 best companies of personalization. And there's some companies I think are great at personalization that aren't necessarily, aren't even on this list. Um, but that being said, if you're doing an internal project and you're saying, hey, who should we benchmark ourselves with? Who's good at personalization? Like, to me, this is as good a list as any as a sort of starting point from a, a, a company that showed their math or talking, like proving why they think someone's good at personalization, which is super helpful. Yeah. In, in your experience, let's say you're kind of world class like this. What's it going to do to the lifetime value of your customer? Are you going to get like a material. So if that customer is worth $200, is it going to go to 500 or what, what have you seen anonymously amongst your clients as the output of the increase in customer lifetime value? Yeah. It, so, uh, I'm not trying to be coy. It's super hard to answer because almost no one's going from zero to best in class. Yeah. They, they probably were very incremental. So, um, and it's, it's hard to measure, the whole lifetime journey of their personalization, unless you've been working with a client for a very long time. So very often we do things like, uh, Hey, let's remediate all of those, you know, redundant information requests. Um, and like, honestly, those kinds of changes rarely show like single session, you know, wild improvements. Um, but they show meaningful changes in things like NPS score, um, and meaningful changes in, in things like customer lifetime value. Um, that, that second tier of personalization where we say like, hey, I'm going to use every touch point I have with a customer to promote something meaningful and not something they already bought. Um, I absolutely have customers that have seen 50% increases in customer lifetime value. And at first you go, hey, Jason, that seems like an astronomical improvement. Like, how is that possible? But when you think about it, if you're hitting someone 30 times a year with a marketing message um, and and your best version of that message is impactful and really causes customers to take some incremental action and buy something, and instead of using your best message, you're squandering a bunch of those 30 interactions by hitting them with something 
that's totally irrelevant to them and they're for sure not going to buy. Like, essentially, you've doubled or tripled your frequency without any risk of increased unsubscribes or filtering or other problems that you usually have when you increase your frequency. Mm-hmm. So you're getting more marketing hits for free, essentially. So that that can be super high value. Um, and then that sort of third tier um, is is sort of all across the board. If you're someone that had no product recommendations and you have a big complicated catalog and you add product recommendations, you probably are going to see a 20 or 30% lift in sales. Like if you're someone that has 12 products and you add recommendation tiles, it's probably not going to be as meaningful because most customers are going to be able to manage your whole catalog without the recommendations. Got it. Um, so uh, that's kind of where we're at today in terms of who's doing well and what they're doing. Um, but what I spend most of my time talking about is what uh, where the puck's going to be. What are people going to be thinking about? What's going to be best practices next year um, or the, in the next 18 months or two years? What should retailers be investing in now, anticipating the, the you know, continuing changes that customer expectations are going to have? Um, so... Uh, the kind of things that come up here are richer versions of personalization. They're that 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 third tier of personalization. Um, so today, machine language gets hyped a lot, and it gets hyped as a, a way to improve product recommendations, which I would argue product recommendations have been machine learning-based for 10 years. Um, but we're, uh, it's easy to see in the future actual uh, experiences changed based on machine learning. So as an example, um, say you have a complicated product catalog and you have a taxonomy for the, that catalog, right? Mm-hmm. What are the first categories you see in that drop-down list? Is it women's apparel because you sell the most women's apparel? Um, well, would it be interesting for men if men's apparel showed up higher than women's apparel? Um, if I know that uh, you're a plumber, should the plumbing taxonomy show up at uh, Home Depot with more prevalence than the carpentry products at Home Depot? Um, and so we're, we're starting to see um, personalization extend beyond those, those basic recommendations. And in many cases, the, the, the latest versions of machine learning um, can not only improve the personalization, they can actually make suggestions or give hypotheses for what should be personalized to have the most meaningful change. So as opposed to having a UX person say, oh, I saw our competitors are personalizing this thing that we're not. Maybe we should test that. You can actually have, if you have a lot of traffic on your site, you can start, we're starting to be able to use artificial intelligence to suggest what kinds of personalization would most improve our customer experience, which is kind of cool science fiction. Personalized personalization. Very meta. Exactly. Um, another big one for most customers that have a big product catalog, and I would argue like this this could have the most pronounced effect at Amazon, is uh, personalized product search. So today, when you go to a retailer with a big catalog and you type in a search term and I type in a search term, we're going to get the exact same results. But if you or I go to Google and both type in a search term into Google, we'll get wildly different results based on what we've typed in the past and what we clicked on and where we live and all the information Google knows about us. And so it only stands to reason that if search is an important discovery tool, 
uh, we ought to be adopting that sort of Google style approach and personalizing search based on all the things we know about. And so it's it's we're now just starting to see the first generation of of search engines that that have that kind of AI based personalization built into them. Um, the like moving away from the experiences a little bit to think about other ways that personalization is starting to change is what if I personalized the delivery or personalized the shipping schedule, um, right? So one interesting thing is Amazon has a patent on predictive shipping, meaning send stuff to you before you ask for it to surprise and delight you. And if they're wrong and you don't want it, you just don't pay for it. Right. And an even simpler version of that, if you live in a big condo building, maybe I should put the hundred products that your condo building is most likely to buy in the basement of that condo building and fulfill out of the micro fulfillment center in your basement instead of having to ship it to you. So we're starting to see personalization of the supply chain, which to me is pretty interesting. Yeah. Or uh, stage it in an Amazon locker. And then when you order it, just be like, yeah, it's downstairs already. Yeah, good. It's in 12. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Here's your QR code to open it. Um, and, and of course, like I would put all the auto replenishment experiences, like um, when the Keurig coffee maker knows you used your last K-cup or you're about to use your last K-cup, it could order more more coffee pods for you. Or when, you know, Walmart sees how much peanut butter you buy a month and they know when to ship you new peanut butter. Like all, all of those kinds of things to me are a particularly interesting version of personalization. Um we're, we're starting to see a lot more personalization in even what products people carry. So to me, like Stitch Fix is a particularly good example of this, um, where they're using what they learn about their customers to decide what products to carry and merchandise on the site, right? And uh, Amazon has a, a version of this in essentially their hands-off-the-wheel approach. And instead of having a bunch of merchants and buyers deciding what people might want, they have a bunch of data scientists that are personalizing the product catalog based on on the actual behaviors they're they're seeing in their ecosystem um there are other retailers that are doing that um adore me is a a, you know a a women's brand that uses a lot of data to to improve their product offerings um we're now seeing these they're sort of gimmicky at the moment but some interesting partnerships between technology companies and traditional brands um, where they're designing new products based on data and AI. So there's this uh, Shinola partnership with market sites where they're they're using AI to tell Shinola what new products to make and put the brand on. Uh, Tommy Hilfiger has a partnership with IBM and the Fashion Institute to um, make make new products based on personalization data instead of the intuition of of a product designer or merchant. So to me, that's an interesting area that the future is getting, uh, going to. And then the biggest area that we're moving to is forget personalizing the experience. Let's personalize the products. Right. Um, and so the, the simplest version of this is products that have a lot of configurations. We used to make the decision about what configuration a customer could buy and pre bundle them for them. So if you bought the original Apple watch, Apple decided which band went with which color watch. But today, if you want to buy a Gen, is it Gen 5? Uh, Series 5. Series 5 uh, Apple Watch, um, you're getting the Apple Watch Studio experience where essentially a person will show you the whole assortment of bands, cases, and let you custom bundle any any possible permeation that makes sense for you. Um, 
we're starting to see a lot of what I call co-creation, where brands sell a product that's pre-manufactured, but then they do some kind of embellishment or customization at the point of purchase. So that's like the Levi's custom tailor shop that'll that'll embroider your jeans or sew custom patches on your clothes um, to make them more unique just to you. Ralph Lauren has a similar experience. Nike will let you design and create your own shoes. Uh, Rafa is a... Uh, a men's bicycle company that that has some personalization options. Uh, Lola Lisa. There's there's a increasing amount of places where I can embe- embellish the base model with with unique things that make it personal just to me. And to me, that's an interim step. Increasingly, there are companies that make the product from scratch just for you and I. Um, and so at the moment, apparel is really where this is being sort of led. So. Uh, If you go to the Boston uh, version of Ministry of Supply, they actually have a computer weaving machine in the store that makes custom uh, smart wool blazers for for customers based on their unique criteria. Adidas has made uh, sweaters on demand for customers. Um, And then there's a whole set of apparel companies that like use the phone to measure you, the camera on the phone to measure you, and then make custom products to order. So that's M. Taylor or Proper Cloth or Red Thread or Unspun. You know, even things like uh, Indochino are really sort of a build-to-order model where you can you can have a significant degree of personalization. Um, and so that that is somewhat interesting. Um, and then just like with the the coke. The, the data-driven merchandising, instead of having the customer decide what would be cool, what if we use technology and the customer's data to anticipate what a personalized product was that Scott would want? So uh, there, there are initiatives like H&M partnering uh, with ZizMe to, to create personalized fashion for customers based on uh, unique things they know about that customer. And there's a bunch of, um, of brands that are, are uh, personalizing fit, for example. Yeah. Uh, a big one I've seen talk is Doug Mack at Fanatics. I think he said something like 60, 70, 80% of their products have some kind of customization. Um, and that's just like, you know, you would think people would just buy the jersey or whatever, but apparently people love to put you know their name on it or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And if you yeah. think about it, that's such a huge win for the retailer, right? Like, so a couple of things happen. Returns are a huge problem in e-commerce and personalized products have a much lower return rate. Like very often it's easier to not offer returns when a product's been personalized. <laughs> yeah. But even when you do, there's this thing called the endowment effect. Like if it, something has your name on it, you're less likely to send it back than, than uh, if, it, if it feels like a generic object. Um, I would also argue that it's a potential moat against uh, big marketplaces like Amazon. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things Amazon's not great at yet is personalized product. And I would argue by far Amazon's biggest competitive advantage, they have a, a number of them, but the biggest one is they have the best, most robust distribution uh, system in the world. And a lot of that advantage goes away when the product has to be made or personalized before it shipped to you. Yeah, definitely one of the few areas you've hit on that's not an Amazon core competency. It gives you a little seam to compete with them against. Exactly. And I, like like most things, I probably wouldn't bank on that being a, a forever <laughs> weakness. Yeah. Um, but right, right now, there's an area of opportunity there. 
Um, so, uh, uh, we're coming up on time, but just to sort of wrap up, like the things to me that are most important when you're thinking about, uh, getting serious about personalization is this whole notion of don't try to achieve personalization, optimize for relevancy, like optimize for a better customer experience that has a higher custom customer lifetime value, focus on those outcomes, not the specific tactics. And if you're going to do one thing right now. Um, even though you may not be ready to to make big investments in new personalization tools or dramatically different customer experiences, is invest a little bit of time and effort in updating your data governance pro, uh, policies and making sure that you're doing the right disclosures when you collect information. Because I'm uh, so many more of our experiences two years down the road are going to be data powered, and it would just be a shame if you don't have access to the next two years of your customer data because you didn't collect it in the right way. So that's a really low cost uh, mistake that you can avoid right now. Yeah. Is there a, is there a set of best practices we can point people to or anything out there on, you know, what do you collect? Should I ask people their gender? Should I ask them their age? Should I, you know, and then how do I, you know, how do I make sure that I'm getting data that I can keep for the long term? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things, uh, like the first thing is, you mostly want to get your disclosures right. Like when you collect the data, when you ask the customer for data, most of the the newer privacy policies and customer protections um, really center around fully disclosing to the customer how you're going to use something. Okay. So in the old world, you ask for an email address and you didn't necessarily have to tell them how you were going to use that email address. Um, today... You probably have to tell them that if they give you the email address, you're going to use it to send marketing emails to them. But you're also going to use it as a a unique identifier to identify that customer when they come to you in the future. Um, When I click on those uh, filters on a search to narrow my search by certain attributes, in the old days, you just clicked on those filters and the assortment narrowed. Today, you probably want a disclosure at the bottom of that box saying... I'm going to collect the attributes that are important to you, and I may use those for per- future personalization. So just getting the disclosure right is a a, a huge element of a, a best practice that you should be thinking about in terms of data governance. Got it. Um, and uh, with that, I think it's happened again. We have perfectly used up our allotted time. But if this has whetted your whistle about personalization, then we have done our job. And we'd love to continue the conversation on Twitter or Facebook. So feel free to go there. As always, if this uh, deep dive was beneficial for you, um, we sure would appreciate it if you'd go on iTunes and give us that five-star review. Thanks, Jason. I know I learned a ton, and hopefully listeners did as well. I appreciate it, Scott. Until next time. Happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.